Good afternoon. I'm Murray Aiken. I'm uh, Executive Director of the IQVIA Institute for Human Data Science. So we're a small group uh, within the larger uh, IQVIA organization that undertakes uh, independent research on a range of uh, health topics that we think are of interest uh, to a broad set of healthcare stakeholders around the world. We draw upon all of the uh, resources and, and capabilities um, of IQVIA and bring those to bear on those healthcare topics. We've been looking at the issue of digital health for some time and published three reports uh, on the topic since uh, 2013. So what I want to do is spend a few minutes just taking you through uh, the highlights of the mo most recent report. Uh, and then Nelia, my colleague, will uh, talk more about the uh, digital therapeutics and the uh, evidence framework and need uh, for that uh, in, when, uh, when she speaks. So if we just go back a little bit, uh, just to recap uh, how far we have all come uh, in a relatively short period of time, because uh, I do think it's worth acknowledging the uh, progress that has been made in the past few years, uh, certainly as compared to the progress that tends to get made in other parts of healthcare, which tend to move more in decade-long cycles, uh, there's really been a, a remarkable uh, transformation in the digital health space, certainly since we started looking at this in 2013, when our first report was subtitled Patient Apps for Improved Healthcare from Novelty to Mainstream. Uh, and that was that report incorporated our uh, analysis of, at that time, the 65,000 apps that were available on the iTunes Store or the Android platform, uh, most, of it, most of which, the vast majority of which, definitely fit uh, the sort of categorization of a novelty. Um, there wasn't a lot of evidence uh, that any of them did much of anything. Uh, the functionality was, was very uh, limited. And we called that out, um, uh, not to be critical of uh, the efforts that had been made, but really to speak to the need to, to set the bar a little higher for our collective selves in order for digital health to play a meaningful role uh, to become part of the mainstream delivery of healthcare. All of which we said at the time needed to be underpinned by evidence. And without that evidence, we were only ever going to see digital health tools as novelty, shiny things that uh, would certainly be attractive to some segment, but would, which would hardly move the needle uh, in terms of overall healthcare costs, overall healthcare uh, outcomes, or patient uh, and, and indeed consumer satisfaction. So we've been on this theme for a while, and we... we uh, we got a little flack, you know, back in 2013 for not, uh, you know, explaining that all was well with these wonderful, you know, apps that were out there when we said, yes, but they may look wonderful, but are they really doing anything for the, for the patient? We updated that work uh, two years later when there were 135,000 uh, apps out there and, and where we were able to report some improvement in the, uh, both the amount and the nature of the evidence uh, that was, uh, was out there, that had been published uh, in peer-reviewed uh, uh, sort of journals or outlets. Um, at the same time, it was clear there's still a lot of major barriers 
uh, within the health system to uh, enable that they were preventing these advances, these digital health tools, uh, to play a, a full and meaningful role in healthcare. So we, we also called out those uh, barriers and reported on them. The most recent report, which actually uh, comes in two flavors, there's the sort of global report, which uh, is, is fairly US-centric, uh, and then there's the uh, UK report that you have in your packet, which uh, certainly which builds on that global perspective, but then tailors it to the particular circumstances in the UK. Um, you know, what we are reporting on here is the, the growing evidence of the value that digital health uh, is bringing to healthcare. Not just talking about the, the promise, uh, as Indra says, you know, we're beyond just talking about the, the prospects for this. We're, we're actually seeing uh, the results, and, and that's a great uh, achievement. More to be done, for sure, uh, but we were able to, uh, to call that out. Um, what we uh, cover in the report, you know, just, just briefly, we talk about the proliferation um, of the tools. Uh, we, we look more closely at uh, sensors. Uh, again, that's an area that, if we go back to 2013, there, there really wasn't a lot uh, going on around the, the use of sensors, so we've uh, covered that uh, in the report. Um, how is digital health actually delivering value uh, to patients, to the health system. Uh, we dig into that. What's the uh, investment that is being made in evidence, not only uh, evidence that already exists, but the pipeline of future uh, evidence. So we took a look at uh, clinicaltrials.gov as a, as a sort of proxy for uh, clinical uh, activity and, uh, and, and tracked what's in there that relates to, uh, to digital health. Um, and then a final chapter on accelerating the use uh, in, in medicine. So what I want to do uh, in a few minutes is just sort of summarize the, the key findings uh, from this report. Um, and to be clear, the report is, is about digital health more broadly, um, so it's not specifically focused on the digital therapeutics as defined by Wikipedia, um, but, it, but it does, so it does take that, that broader uh, view. So in terms of the, the key findings, let me just run through this quickly. Um, we looked at the number of consumer health apps that are out there, um, and we're, we are reporting another doubling um, in, the, in the number, um, over 300,000 uh, apps, uh, and more than 200 being added every day. So we know that there's just a lot of activity going on. Um, of course, still not all of these apps um, have evidence behind them. Not all of them are, uh, I mean, many of them are still novelties, uh, but, but certainly this is a reflection of the level of investment, the level of activity, the level of interest uh, in this uh, area. What we did note was the mix of apps between those that are focused on sort of health and wellness uh, versus uh, disease management um, has shifted uh, quite a bit. So we saw, we're, we reported 40% of the apps are now what we would call focused on, on health conditions and patient care, um, up from 27% in 2015. So again, a pretty rapid um, shift in the mix of apps that are out there. We think that's a positive sign, you know, again, uh, that the, the focus is increasingly on bringing these apps 
uh, to bear in, in, in terms of meaningful impact that they can have uh, on patient care. We looked at the increase in the, uh, the number of sensors that are connected uh, to the apps and obviously the information flow that comes from those sensors and their ability to, uh, to monitor uh, patient uh, use of medicines, it, to monitor vital signs, uh, to provide a continuous flow of uh, information that uh, helps fill in the gaps uh, between those periodic uh, visits uh, of the patient to a healthcare professional. We talk about the, uh, the use of apps across the entire patient journey, and in that context, clearly, uh, therapeutics uh, are an important uh, part of it. Um, we also talked about the validation of uh, digital biomarkers and digital therapeutics, uh, and the, the validation that we've seen to date, and sort of what that portends in terms of more extensive uh, uses of these apps and other digital health tools. Um, we also report on the what I would, what we characterize as a growing confidence uh, in the value that the entire health system and importantly uh, patients but also providers and payers um, can take from and can, can receive from this growing body of evidence around uh, digital health tools. So we have been tracking uh, what has been published uh, that, that represents evidence uh, around a digital health tool use. Uh, we've got, we had at the time of the report, 571 uh, studies in our database. Uh, that's now uh, well over 600. Um, but again, a, a significant body of evidence that we're pleased to be able to uh, refer to. Uh, we also talk about the, uh, the evidence, uh, the, the evaluation and the curation uh, platforms that are out there uh, to particularly fill that specific need that healthcare professionals have uh, to feel confident uh, about the apps that they may be uh, recommending to patients or the tools that they may be uh, incorporating in providing care to patients. Uh, this level of confidence is something we've uh, talked about um, a lot and as a, as a key requirement to really crossing this, uh, this hump uh, and getting digital health tools used more broadly. Um, these sorts of platforms, and, and there are many of them now, um, can be a critical uh, means to, to build that uh, confidence and to provide the necessary guidance um, to healthcare professionals. We also sought out in this report uh, to quantify the economic benefits. Um, this is an area that hasn't been studied um, very much to date. Uh, so we decided to uh, you know, make an effort to quantify the impact on healthcare costs through reduced use of acute care services resulting from patients using uh, validated apps for which there's evidence that the use of those apps leads to reduced uh, emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and so on. Uh, covering five different um, uh, disease areas, and we built up a, a, a sort of a rudimentary model uh, to try to put a, a dollar or a, a pound value on that. Um, 
we came up with $7 billion in annual savings in the US, 170 million pounds in the UK. Simply looking at these five areas, pre-diabetes, diabetes, respiratory, and cardiac rehabilitation, and asthma as well as pulmonary rehabilitation. So those were the five areas. We're sure this is not the perfect number. Uh, we think we've been conservative. We want to see a lot more people uh, trying to quantify the economic benefits uh, because, as we all appreciate in this room, um, that does uh, that, that is an important input, uh, whether it be to the NHS or, or others uh, who are paying for services, to have confidence that there's uh, going to be a return uh, on that investment. So. We encourage more um, review of the economic consequences, uh, clearly in addition to the uh, patient benefits that come from the use of these uh, tools. We also um, are able to report that the ongoing uh, investment in, uh, in evidence is uh, significant. Um, we're tracking over uh, 800 clinical trials uh, currently underway that incorporate um, some type of digital health tool. Uh, so that's terrific. Um, the money is going in. Um, uh, patient care organizations are also uh, significant um, investors in uh, these kinds of uh, uh, trials and evidence uh, development uh, activities. So this is also, uh, we think, a very positive signal uh, of where things are headed. So our overall conclusion is, uh, you know, a very positive one uh, in terms of the maturation of um, of M Health of digital health, particularly over that uh, sort of four-year, four or five-year arc that that we've been following it uh, for. That being said, we recognise um, there's still some significant barriers in order for these tools to to be part of the mainstream, and um, we. Uh, obviously are here to address part of that um, today. Okay, so th this is the way that we sort of lay out the, um, again, the sort of patient journey and the potential role that digital health tools are playing. Um, this may not be fully um, comprehensive, but it does speak to the breadth of uh, the application of the tools uh, from the sort of wellness and prevention side uh, through the symptom uh, and seeking care uh, activities to diagnosis, condition education, and then uh, treatment. And, um, you know, I think we, we are missing digital therapeutics there on the right-hand side, um, which is really the focus here. But the point making we're making on this chart is, is the breadth of the relevance of these um, tools. And I think we, we, we want to keep that broad perspective uh, in mind as we think about evidence uh, and how that evidence applies to the different parts of the patient journey. The next slide is just tracking the uh, uptick in the uh, published studies that we're collating in our, uh, in our database. Um, and again, that year-to-date uh, 2017 number, the, the full year came out in excess of 200. What's significant here, I think, is the nature of the studies uh, that we see coming through. So you can see about half of them are observational 
uh, studies, but a significant number are randomized uh, controlled trials. Uh, we think this is important. We'll come back to this issue, no doubt, in the course of the day. Uh, but randomized controlled tr trials definitely have a, an important role to play in building up the uh, evidence. And then we're seeing uh, a growing number of systematic reviews and, and meta-analyses uh, come through in the published research as well. Um, so this is the map that we use um, to try to track the progress in the evidence development. So we've got on the x-axis uh, sort of a, a, a way of thinking about the relative quantity and quality of the available clinical evidence. Um, and you can see moving from left to right, we, we sort of move from uh, areas where there's actually no studies um, through to the, the sort of multiple meta-analyses. Uh, and we can have discussions whether these are really sequential uh, elements here on the x-axis, but it's, it's notionally a way of thinking about a growing quantity and quality of the evidence. And then on the y-axis, uh, whether the, that evidence is pointing to a positive impact, uh, sort of universally or mostly, or uh, a more negative impact as a result of the studies. And we've plotted, again, based on our database of the evidence that's out there, um, the number of studies sort of relative to their uh, position uh, against those two axes. Um, and the size of the bubble is the number of uh, studies published. So the, the big blue bubble is the, uh, are all the studies around exercise. So there's a lot of them. Um, the sort of relative outcome of those studies is, uh, sort of is, is on the negative side. Um, so we've still got work to do in terms of understanding um, you know, what, what it is that, or the, the means by which digital health tools and exercise can improve uh, health outcomes. But in the upper uh, left corner, importantly, we've got the areas where we would say uh, there's a lot of evidence and it's mostly positive, um, and that's covering diabetes, depression, and anxiety. Uh, we make the case in the report that there's, a, there's sufficient uh, evidence here to really incorporate these tools into uh, clinical guidelines, um, and we are seeing that uh, progress now. In other areas, you know, the reality is we've still got relatively uh, limited amounts of, uh, of evidence and or that evidence is uh, mixed in terms of its outcome. So this is a way that we're trying to sort of keep track of the progress year to year uh, or every uh, couple of years. Uh, things have definitely moved around since we looked at this uh, two years earlier. Um, and I think it's a useful way going forward to also track our collective um, progress. The next slide. Um, so this is uh, breaking down the, uh, the model quantifying the economic uh, impact of using digital tools can have in reducing acute care uh, service utilization. So it's a, it's a fairly narrow definition in terms of uh, the, uh, the, the outcome, um, which makes this conservative. Um, it still adds up in the UK's instance to um, 170 million uh, pounds. Again, we invite um, improvements on, on the approach that we took. We think that this is an area, again, that, that hasn't been looked at closely enough uh, and uh, we'll be doing more in this area, but we, we certainly suggest others should be as well. 
the next slide. Um, so this chart is really speaking to the, the barriers that we still have in terms of uh, clinician acceptance of apps and their willingness to, um, quote, prescribe an app to a patient. So across the top, we've got the, uh, the, the key areas that clinicians are looking for in order for them to uh, feel comfortable in recommending apps um, to patients. And the, the bubbles are reflecting the results of a, of a survey of uh, clinicians. So this is a US uh, American Medical Association survey. I'm not sure if there's been a comparable one done in the UK. Uh, but it does speak to where there are still gaps, particularly around data privacy and security assurances, um, mitigation of malpractice risk, which is, a, as you know, a, a very big deal in the US, perhaps not so much here, uh, and acceptable financial uh, incentives. Uh, and getting those aligned uh, for the uh, physicians. On the bottom are a set of uh, what we call the accelerators of adoption um, that we think are, are very important to look ahead uh, to the greater utilization um, of these tools. Um, and that includes the uh, app curation platforms that I talked about a little bit earlier, uh, the permission to make marketing for marketing claims uh, to, be be, to be made about apps and the impact they can have um, on outcomes. Uh, patient and, uh, privacy and security guidelines um, to help ensure that everybody is feeling comfortable about what data is being transferred, with what permission, and in what circumstances, and, and under what uh, security umbrella. Uh, inclusion of uh, digital tools in standard of care guidelines. Um, this is where uh, we, we know the importance of professional societies and endorsing uh, these sorts of tools is, is important, um, and that's a, a, a major accelerator um, of the adoption. Merit-based um, incentives, so where it makes sense, uh, providing uh, incentives to encourage the use of these tools, uh, and then the interoperability standards to enable the information that flows from apps to be fully integrated with other information uh, seamlessly in the in the flow uh, that is that is seen by the uh, by the healthcare professional. So let's talk a little bit about those in the um, in the UK context. Um, and you know, as an observer of this space, um, I do have to say that you know the activities that are going on in the UK. Uh, do stand out in terms of, uh, you know, as a health system and as an ecosystem, really grabbing hold of the opportunity here for the, to, to put the UK ahead uh, in terms of uh, uh, addressing some of these issues uh, that will help accelerate uh, digital health um, adoption. And we can see, you know, across each of those uh, sort of six accelerators that uh, there is activity uh, going on, at least in, in four of them, and I'm sure we'll hear through the course of the day, you know, your own perspectives uh, in terms of uh, how well we're doing uh, in the UK and also what we, what we can do about the areas where there are still uh, potential uh, gaps. Because it is fair to say that while there is a lot going on in the UK, um, you know, based on looking at the investment level uh, and the, uh, the level of uh, evidence coming out of the UK relative to the rest of the world, um, you know, 
you're still a small player. So is there more opportunity uh, to take a larger share of the pie? We would say yes. I think part of today's discussion is, a, is really a, an effort to try to uh, do that. Um, what is the opportunity in establishing the UK as a real leader in the real world research um, focused specifically on digital therapeutics and getting the evidence uh, out there from studies that will you know, validate uh, as appropriate those uh, therapeutics and, and again use that as, a, as an accelerator of the adoption of these tools. Um, so this is a, a framework um, you know, of five elements um, that are, are all fairly pragmatic. They're all um, able to be um, achieved in the UK that would collectively enable the UK to really be a leader in evidence uh, generation. Um, so just briefly, uh, you know, the, the, the first is around simplifying um, the study application and the setup, right? Lowering the barrier for anyone, uh, patient or uh, clinician, to get involved uh, in a study. Uh, setting up a pre-contracted uh, digital therapeutics research network. That's ready to go um, in relatively short order uh, when a new study uh, comes along so that, again, we avoid uh, those, uh, those time and, and, and bureaucratic hurdles that uh, we know get in the way of a lot of uh, therapeutic uh, trial activity. Um, using uh, or, or using the um, app prescribing platforms or third-party research in apps uh, that enables patients very easily to contribute the data uh, from their use of a particular tool uh, for the purposes of a uh, clinical study. So again, making it easy, making it convenient uh, for, the, uh, for the patient. Having a bench of qualified independent research teams, again, sort of preset and ready to go uh, that can uh, interpret the results uh, of the uh, trials or of the uh, activities and, and get that um, through peer review and into publication in as short a time as period uh, as possible. We need to accelerate the sort of traditional uh, time cycles of clinical trials, of therapeutic trials for medicines and, and devices. Uh, we need to accelerate that to, to meet the needs of the digital uh, space. Uh, and then fifth and finally, and, and fifth and importantly, is the ability to um, immediately transition to, uh, to the use of these tools in routine care. So we still have that final barrier, right? Even when the evidence is out there, how do we ensure that when the evidence exists that it does translate uh, into routine care? So these are things, again, I, I think we'll hear more about uh, these elements uh, in, in the afternoon. Uh, but we think that collectively this approach uh, can really help the, the UK um, take the lead in terms of generating the evidence uh, for uh, digital therapeutic studies. I think the final slide I want to show that, again, will be what we're talking about this afternoon, is, is how to think about uh, setting the standard for clinical evidence. And um, as one of my colleagues likes to call, applying the Goldilocks uh, principle to 
defining what we mean is uh, sufficient, uh, not excessive, uh, sufficient evidence uh, for the particular digital health tool and its particular application. Uh, so being clear about what we're trying to get evidence for, how much do we need, what type do we need, uh, what's the risk uh, associated uh, with that use, and, and, and getting that framed out. Uh, so that we are being pragmatic, we are incorporating the time cycle of uh, the digital world, uh, and that, but at the same time, we're developing the body of evidence that's needed for all of us uh, to feel the level of confidence we need in order to move digital health tools into the mainstream. So with that, I will um, close. That's, uh, again, a, a brief summary of the report that you're welcome to uh, read in detail. Um, uh, all of our reports are available free uh, for, uh, for download from our website. We invite uh, feedback and suggestions. We will be working on another report uh, probably for um, early 2019. Uh, but let me now turn over to, to my colleague Nalia. Uh, to talk more specifically about uh, digital therapeutics and the approach to evidence development. Thank you. Thank you so much, Murray. And thanks everyone for joining us this afternoon. I'm very, very humbled to be up here talking about such an innovative topic, and especially because um, right after this little introduction, we're going to be joined by some of the pioneers in this area, which I think is particularly exciting. So it falls to me to talk a little bit more about digital therapeutics. Um, first of all, I'm Nelia Padilla. I lead IQVIA's Global Health consulting services, and digital therapeutics is a specific interest, passion, um, and area that I love to talk about and study as well. But a lot of people ask the question, well, what is a digital therapeutic? There's been a lot of press, as I'm sure folks have seen in the news. And actually, let's see if we could go to the, the first slide here. It's all over the news, whether you're, you're reading The Economist, The Daily Mail, there's all this talk about digital health, there's all this talk about digital therapeutics, but if we really think about what it all means, on the next slide, as was already kindly presented, there's a couple of sources of information. There's definitely Wikipedia in terms of what is a digital therapeutic, but if we talk about this subject to some of these entrepreneurs and some of these pioneers in the area, it's actually a little more simple, but also a little more daunting in terms of what a digital therapeutic really is. It really is software that is intended to treat a condition or a disease. Now, not a lot of people can really digest what, it, what that actually means. It means something that could sit on your phone, something that could sit on your computer, that is meant to treat a condition that sometimes either there's no treatment for today that is treated with drugs or with a medical device. So if we think about the impact of all of this and, and go forward a slide, digital therapeutics is just a new way of achieving a clinical outcome that so many of us in the healthcare space are looking to achieve. We've had drugs, we've had devices, 
And now we have digital therapeutics, something that's really new, really exciting. But just because there's a lot of digital apps and digital health out there, not everything is a digital therapeutic. So how do you actually start to think about the differences across those apps and the digital therapeutics? Well, on the next slide, I'd like to posit that there's actually five key areas to really pay attention to and really start to hone in on when you think about digital health apps versus therapeutics or versus the whole spectrum of what falls under digital health. First of all, what is their intended use? How is this technology really going to be used? Is it going to be used to treat a disease? Is it going to be used to inform? And what kind of disease are you really talking about? Secondly, what has it actually demonstrated with respect to its efficacy and or effectiveness? What are the types of studies out there? As my colleague Murray Aitken was saying, have they hit the Goldilocks principle? Is it the right amount of information to assess that effectiveness and efficacy, or is it too much or too little? The third one is about the regulatory clearance. Are they going after a regulatory clearance, either via CE mark, FDA approval, other types of regulatory bodies in order to gain credibility or for use, depending on, again, their intended use? Uh, the fourth one, have they thought about and are they being incorporated into standards of care? What's the published literature out there, especially in the disease? And as uh, my colleague Murray Aiken mentioned, at least in, in diabetes, a lot of the guidelines are already starting to incorporate digital therapeutics and making sure digital health is part of the standard of care in terms of delivery. And finally, very importantly, is the cost effectiveness. Has there been demonstration of the value or the cost effectiveness of some of these modalities? So let's look at this in a little bit more detail. As I mentioned, um, on the panel in a little bit are going to be the pioneers in this area and experts. And they've already generated a substantial amount of data demonstrating the effectiveness of digital therapeutics. So on the next slide, we're actually going to go through some of the data that's available for some of these products and map them onto these five categories to take a look at the actual impact and where digital therapeutics is moving towards. So these are just a, a couple of the ranges in terms of what's possible across the five categories that I mentioned. And we'll go through them in a little bit more detail. So the first one I want to highlight here a little bit is Blue Star and WellDoc. Back in 2011, they published some great insights into the way a digital tool can actually impact the levels of, decrease the levels of HbA1c in patients. Something that had not been done before, documented in a way where you could use a digital intervention to actually impact the disease in quite this way. So it was a, a controlled clinical trial and they had pretty impressive results. And just a few years later on the next slide, Insulia with Voluntis followed suit. And they also had very impressive endpoints with respect to HbA1c and the control that they were able to demonstrate with a lot of their diabetes patients. Again, well-controlled clinical trials, and they had the advantage in this area compared to some of the others we'll talk about, where the clinical endpoints were very well known and meaningful in the clinical community. 
it was easy to relate what an HbA1c level decrease was to clinical care and some of the outcomes that would come from that. As we go into the next slide, Achille, for example, is really a pioneer. They're going after treatments of attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, and what they were measuring had not been measured in a digital way before, and yet it is a clinically relevant endpoint for most of the clinicians who actually treat this disease. Again, they took a very um, scientific and rigorous approach to trying to demonstrate that their product, Evo, which is essentially an online game, can really change the way treatment of ADHD occurs. Very exciting data. If we move on to one before it, <laughs> well, actually, that is the one, sorry, Sleepio. So Sleepio has been very interesting because they actually digitized what was traditionally done in face-to-face -face cognitive behavioral therapy. And their evidence suggests that they're, they're definitely the same as, if not better, than some of the cognitive behavioral therapy in order to get patients to have better sleep patterns and be able to um, avoid a lot of the complications that come from insomnia. So absolutely fantastic data, and this is something that's already a little bit more familiar here in the UK. The last one I wanted to go through very quickly was MyCOPD. Again, great efficacy results with respect to pulmonary rehabilitation for uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and what it actually means for some of these patients. So not only were they looking at well-controlled trials, but they were also looking at very direct measures of what the patients could actually do and the improvements of what it actually meant for them. So when we look at the, all the evidence as a whole and all of the companies as a whole on the next slide, we start to see where they fit along these five parameters. And what's really interesting is that these companies and these pioneers know the importance of demonstrating the efficacy and the effectiveness in order to get buy-in and credentials into the medical world. They have all performed very rigorous clinical trials in order to demonstrate a lot of what software as a medical device can do, something that's very, very different in this field. And many of them, I would uh, posit most of them, are actually in the process or have already gone through some type of regulatory clearance with various types of regulators, whether it be in the US or outside the US. Back in October in 2017, the uh, US Food and Drug Administration actually approved the first digital therapeutic from pair therapeutics for substance abuse disorder. Something, again, that's very pioneering and very interesting. But there's still a ways to go. A lot of these companies are new. This is still something that's evolving in the field. And so demonstrating cost effectiveness at the next level of evidentiary requirements is something we're all looking forward to and that these companies are very much looking at and evaluating. So with that, I actually get the great pleasure of introducing most of these pioneers and, and uh, panelists. So I'd like to welcome onto the stage the moderator, Neelam Patel, who's the Chief Operating Officer of MedCity. Thank you, Neelam, for being the moderator. And the panelists. So from WellDoc, we have Anand Iyer, who is the Chief Strategy Officer. From Akili, we have Vincent Hanemond, 
the VP of Strategy and Corporate and Business Development. From Big Health, we have Sophie Bostock, UK Innovation Lead. From MyM Health, we have Simon Bourne, CEO of MyM Health. And from Voluntas, we have the CEO, Pierre Laurent. Thank you.